turn with me to the book of Haggai. We are in our third week, and then next week we're going to finish up this short Old Testament book. In my Bible, you don't have to turn the pages. It's all on one uh, set of two pages right there. The book of Haggai. We've been looking at this incredible Old Testament book about what happens as they're rebuilding the temple, the way God spoke through Haggai to the people to encourage them, to meet them in their disappointment. This week we're going to continue on, and we're going to see what happens when God says he's going to bless his people. Have you ever been blessed by God? We all have a story where maybe we think we've been blessed. We've all had times in our life we've truly been blessed. But what's the formula for being blessed by God? I mean, how do we make that happen? How can we have confidence that God will actually bless us? And I think in this text here in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, we're going to see how God works. We're going to see that we can only receive the blessings of God by grace. So read some scripture with me and let's dive into the message this morning. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does, it, does that food become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, uh, If someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer here is unclean. Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to speak to our hearts through your word this morning. And as you speak, that we would know that it's you working in our life. So we want to come underneath the authority of your word this morning. When we meet you, we expect to change. In Jesus' name, amen. What's happening here in Haggai chapter two is that God is giving a parable to the people. God's giving a parable. So he calls the priests, and the priests probably thought, hey, I'm important. God usually speaks to and through the prophet, but now he wants to talk to the priests. But really, God's just setting up an illustration this whole time because he asks them about basically cleanliness laws. See, in the Old Testament, you go read Leviticus, the part you skip in your Bible reading plan, and you'll read all about these holiness laws about what's clean and what's unclean and how something uh, unclean can make everything else contaminated, but how the opposite's not necessarily true. If something holy touches something unclean, what, what gets transferred there? And that's exactly God's point. He's asking the priest, hey, uh, remind me how this works again. And the priest gives some great answers. But this second question is where God focuses and brings out the spiritual point in the story. He says, what if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these holy things or any of these pieces of food? Does it become unclean? And they said, it does become unclean. See, unholiness and uncleanness is what infected cleanness. And here's the point in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, God is bringing an indictment against his people, saying, just because you do holy things does not mean you are holy. 
Just because you do religious activities, that doesn't mean you're clean on the inside. See, point one of our our sermon today is the problem is inside us. The problem is inside us. He's giving this parable of what's unclean and what's holy. But then if you continue on and we read in verse 15, now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? He's telling them to look back on their lives. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What's happening right there? We could read that on the surface level and say uh, their lives were much less than they hoped for, less than they expected. But if we read the entire Old Testament and we try to make connections across Scripture, like Scott reminded me of this morning as we met, we're constantly trying to make connections between God's Word. What's happening here is God is inviting His people to look back to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It's the end of Moses' life, and here's what Moses says. He looks out onto the future, and Moses, God is speaking through Moses, and Moses says, look, you have two choices. You can obey and be faithful, and you'll find blessing." Or you can disobey and you can be unfaithful and you'll find curses in your future. And in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, it's this long speech, pages long, where he unpacks the curses and he unpacks the blessings. And what he's doing here in Haggai 2 is through Haggai, God is telling his people, haven't you experienced the curses? I mean, you come to this heap expecting 20 measures and there's half. You come to the wine vat and there's less than half. He's saying, I've struck all of your toil, all of your labor, all of your products, and you never turn to me. So as they're reminded of Deuteronomy 27.30, as they're reminded of these holiness and cleanliness laws, they're facing a really hard reality. And it's actually one that Moses predicts there in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. He lays out all the blessings and all the curses, and here's what he says. He kind of sneaks it in there. And when all these things come upon you. Hey, here's all the curses that are going to happen if, if you're disobedient. And when all this happens to you, read between the lines with me. When you're unfaithful, Moses looks ahead and he knows. These people don't have a hope of obeying me. I mean, Moses has wandered with these people in the desert, right? He knows how fickle their hearts are. And he's looking out and he's saying, Curses are in your future. And here in Haggai 2, God's having them now look back and to realize that they don't just need outward religious conformity, they need inner spiritual renewal. Their problem was not a lack of rules. Their problem was not a lack of order or instruction from God. Their problem was not just that they didn't have a temple. What's ultimately wrong with them is that they were broken from the inside. That's what God says. You're broken from the inside, so all these works of your hands are, are unclean and filthy. You can come do these religious works, but your heart. Don't we realize, I mean, didn't Jesus say this? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We read that in scripture. What's ultimately wrong with these people in Haggai 2 is not just that they didn't have enough rules, they didn't have enough instruction, it's not just that they didn't have a temple, but it's that their hearts were far from God. This is my own story as I was thinking back on Haggai 2. 
This might be your story. That I was raised in an incredible Christian family. But it wasn't until I was 14 years old that I realized religious activity is not going to save me. I was at church more in those 14, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was at church more in those 14 years of my life. Maybe even in the next 14 years. Because those early days, we were there, I don't know how many times a week. And then my parents worked there, so I was there more times a week. I mean, my summer days were spent playing Bible card games with Jake Williams. And uh, I was in the church all the time. And I was thinking, have I, I wonder in my life, I'm 29 years old, have I read the Bible more days than I've not read the Bible in my life? I don't know. It'd be interesting, because there's a lot of years there where obviously you can't read. I was the picture of, of being involved in religious activity, which was great. But what I had to reckon with was that that religious activity was not going to save me. When I was 14, I realized I need inner spiritual renewal. And that's all of our problem, not just in Haggai 2, not just me when I was 14, but all of us today need inner spiritual renewal. The truth is that we cannot find true salvation through religious achievements. Religion's not something you do to try to find salvation. Here's what Timothy Keller says. Tim Keller says that we don't need to just repent of the wrong things we've done. We need to repent of our reasons for doing right things. I'm going to say that again. We don't just need to repent of the wrong things we've done. We need to also repent of our reasons for doing right things. What does that mean? It means that sometimes our reasons for doing right things is we think we can position ourselves in a place where we've earned favor from God. Think older and younger brother in the prodigal son. God, if I do the right thing, if I, if I conform religiously, if I rebuild this temple, if I offer the right sacrifices, won't you be pleased with me? God, I'm earning your favor through the things that I'm doing. We need to repent of that. Because we don't just need religious achievement. We need inner spiritual renewal. We cannot find true salvation through any of our works. And we're a hardworking bunch, aren't we? We work longer and harder. We save more and more money. We send our kids to the best schools. We pursue the best education. That might be why you live in East Cobb. We use social media to curate our lives. I love that Lynn's introduced me to that term, the curated life, because I think it fits. We want through our works to have a life that we don't show everybody all of our mess. We curate and only show the best to people so that they'll see what we want them to see. They'll see us as successful or put together or any identity you want to make. But no house, no car, no job, no school, no sport for your kids can fix your insides. We can't find true salvation in covering our shame. With guilt comes shame. We all fear that we might not be enough. It's not just that we've done wrong, but that we are wrong. We might be too weak, too poor, too ugly, too bad at our jobs, too bad of a spouse, too bad of a parent. We don't look how we should look, we don't act how we should act, and we fear we might not be accepted, so we work really hard to cover our shame. And we are screaming to the world, look, I'm enough. Am I enough for you now? Did I say the right things? Did I do the right things? Did I post the right posts on social media? But none of that can really fix your insides. 
just like in Haggai 2. Moses is looking ahead saying, you're never going to be perfectly obedient. And in Haggai 2, surely that lied in their future too. You can rebuild this temple, but surely you're never going to be more obedient than they were in the past. You're doomed to just repeat the cycle of disobedience. So what's the hope? If the problem is inside of us, what is the hope? For us, for them, I, I would say our hope is the same hope that they had. Let's continue to read to see what kind of hope they had. Pick up with me in verse 18. This is God speaking. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider this. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. What's the basis of God's blessing in Haggai 2? temple's unfinished their hearts are unclean if the temple's not finished they're not making the full kind of sacrifices they need to be making i mean it, the timing of this is there it's the same day as as verse 10 it it tells us right there the 24th day of the ninth month so they're winter time they're not guaranteed a, a harvest is coming so the basis of God's blessing is not God saying, look what I've done, look what you've done, you've worked hard, you've achieved this. God's blessing is based purely on his grace. God's looking at them saying, you, you didn't earn it, I just showed you a few verses ago, you, you're not clean. But he says, I will bless you. Their only hope of experiencing God's blessing was God's grace. And that's who God is. We've talked a lot in our men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings about how sometimes it can be hard to find the one God in the whole Bible. It seems like the Old Testament God is like one thing and the New Testament God is different. I have news for you. It's one God. And this is an Old Testament passage where we see God's incredible grace. Sin wants to tell us that God can't be trusted. That's what it was in the Garden of Eden, right? Sin says, no, no, no. He's keeping you from what's really best from you. You can't trust him. And the whole rest of the Bible is a story about how that's wrong and we can really trust this good, good father we sang about. This is who God is. He's gracious and that's how he blesses us. Now, I think I've tried to say this almost every week in Haggai. We could stop here, say amen, rejoice that God graciously blesses us. The only way he blesses us is through grace. But we haven't finished because we haven't made our way to Jesus yet. The question is how? The question is how does God graciously bless us? Because you have people here who are living under the curses of the covenant. How does God bless us? Well, we say, well, by his grace. Well, that's a wonderful answer, but how? How does God pour out blessing on those who deserve nothing but curses? And here's the answer. It's because he poured out curses on the one who deserve blessing. The only way we can receive the blessing of God is if someone else who deserved the blessing received the curses, and that is what we find in Jesus. He's the only one who ever deserved the blessing of God, yet he willingly took on all the curses of the covenant. And you say, what does that mean? Well, if one of the curses of the covenant is you say, look, you're going to be so disobedient, you're going to be exiled from the land, we've already seen Jesus experience a greater exile. 
not out of a land, but out of the very presence of God. So in this text, as we see a people who deserve nothing and have experienced nothing but the curses of God, yet God promises them blessing, we ought to see ourselves. And not just ourselves, we ought to see Jesus. These people deserved to experience these curses. But when Christ comes into the story, he doesn't. He lives a perfect life, a a sinless life, a pure life. And he actually turns this whole thing on its head because do you remember the story of the leper that comes to him? Now, lepers, untouchable. They're mentioned in these Leviticus laws of purity and cleanliness. And if you touched a leper, you were considered impure and unclean. And you had to go through a time of what we all now know so affectionately, you're a close contact. You ought to quarantine, isolate, because you touched a leper. And this leper comes to Jesus in the Gospels and says, if you will, you can make me clean. Just say the word. But I think in what's a very intentional act is he doesn't, he doesn't say the word. Because he's not just interested in healing the leper's sickness, he's interested in restoring his dignity. So Jesus could have spoken the word and healed the leper. But he didn't. He touched him. And in that moment, when we see the leper be healed rather than Jesus get infected, we're immediately clued in that something upside down is happening. Things aren't working the way that we were taught, even in Scripture, they ought to work. Jesus should be unclean at this point. Jesus should be dirty at this point. Now, why is he not? No, wait a minute. Not only is he not unclean, is he not sick? The other guy is healed. Out of Jesus flows life. Jesus takes on the impurity. He takes on the curses, and he experienced a curse that's far worse than exile on the cross later after touching the leper. They indicted him with all these blasphemous charges. The Jews wanted him dead because he was claiming to be the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Romans wanted him dead because he claimed to be king. And Christ, for his part, kept his mouth shut and silently, like a lamb led to the slaughter, went and did the one thing he knew he came here to do. He became the victim of the very violence that has broken the world. He took on the curses that you and I deserve to take on. And because of that, this promise of God in Haggai 2.19, from this day on, I will bless you. That blessing is not based on you earning it. That blessing is not based on you doing something to get in God's good favor. That blessing is based on his grace. And it's based on the fact that your curses have been paid for. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the beautiful exchange. Now what's that application for us though? What does that mean for us? Are you still trying to pay for the curse? You still trying to pay for it? You say, well what does that mean? Are you still living under the banner of condemnation? Thinking that God's upset at you and expecting you to climb your way out? How do you think God views you? Do you think he's ready to curse you? Do you think you're a total failure in God's eyes? 
you know, you can carry around the burden of the curse of your sin and disobedience. You can carry that around for your entire life. And you'll never pay it off. Christ offers you a free gift that he paid for. He won for you. Are you walking around still thinking you've got to pay that off? Why would Paul in Romans 8 1 say something so simple as there's no condemnation for you now? Why would he need to say that? And why would the Holy Spirit inspire that to be written down and preserved for thousands of years so that it could remind us in Marietta, Georgia, that there's no condemnation for us if we're in Christ Jesus? Why do we need that reminder? Because we're so prone to condemn ourselves. You say, why are we prone to condemn ourselves? Because we're prone to earn things, and if we're prone to earn things, we're also prone to look at all the ways we've not earned things. And if we're gonna look at our life in terms of a divine scale, it will always tip in the wrong direction. But if you're in Christ, there is, therefore now, no condemnation. You are not condemned. Do you know the way Jesus views you? Do you know the way God views you? Here's the most accurate way to get a picture of this. If you want to know how God views you, look at how God views Jesus. This is my, this is my beloved son. You are God's beloved. That's not something you earned, and the good news about that is that means it's not something you can lose. You are God's beloved in Christ Jesus. Are you believing that or are you still trying to pay for the curse that Christ paid for? How about this application question? How comfortable are you receiving? We did a study in the spring in our men's Bible studies through the Sermon on the Mount. I remember Lynn asking this question in the first week. How comfortable are you receiving blessing? Because there's not an ounce of God's blessing that we can earn or deserve. It's all of grace that we receive it. How comfortable are you receiving? You may not be very comfortable at all. Because again, we're prone to earn. We're prone to want to deserve. I don't want your pity, and I don't want your handout. Boy, how often do we hear that, see that, watch that in our world. How comfortable are you receiving something for absolutely free? This is the way of the gospel. If you'll have any of it, you'll have to receive it. You're not going to earn it. And you're not going to deserve it. The truth of the gospel is that we look at Jesus and we say, I deserve that. I deserve what he did on the cross, but he did it for me. So what is your expectation then? If you can't earn it, you can't ever deserve it, you've got to receive it. We say, surely something's expected of me, right? Yeah. Glad you asked. You're expected to need Jesus. You're expected to have limitations on your life. God's not looking at you expecting perfection. You need to be careful how we read those passages in Scripture. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. Gotta be careful, because we'll put burdens on us that we're not meant to carry. But the truth is, you're expected to need Jesus, just like Moses in Deuteronomy 30 expected them to fail and need, need God's grace. Do you realize that? Moses still believed in the promises of God, even though at the same time, he totally believed that they would fail. 
How do those come together? Well, we must believe that God's gonna somehow make up for our failure, and that's the glorious good news that is the bedrock of Shallowford Church, that God does not expect you to be limitless and perfect and all-sufficient. If your life is too busy for you to do everything you're doing in a healthy way, you're doing too much, and that's okay. If you're balancing all these priorities in your life and you're trying to do everything and it's causing you internally to go absolutely nuts and you can't sleep and you can't rest and your to-do list never gets finished and you never have a day of rest, part of the reason you need a day of rest is because it's a cosmic reminder that you're not God and the universe doesn't need you. But we here in East Cobb, in North Atlanta, in America, Love the work hard, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps story. And I'm going to read a quote so I don't get in trouble for saying the word that's in this quote. But I was reading a wonderful book this week called Prayer in the Night. And she told a story about that. And she said, bootstraps be damned. Not my words. Bootstraps be damned. Because you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You, keep, you never will be able to. Are you comfortable receiving? I'm getting ready to take the Lord's table in just a few minutes. Are you comfortable receiving? You know why you can use the word damned in that way? Because it's literal. If you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you will be condemned and apart from God because you will never pull yourself up to the place that you need to be in God's eyes. got to let go and receive the blessing of God in which Christ takes on the curse for you so that you can take Christ's blessing. So how in your life do you receive the blessing of God? One is by gathering regularly with us. You don't gather because you feel like it. You gather because you don't. You don't gather because you had a great week. You gather because you didn't. You don't gather because you feel wonderful and holy and spiritual and you're ready to give the answer and you're ready to smile. You gather because you are empty and you recognize the sin that was in your life this week and you recognize how you've been impatient and irritable with those closest to you and you recognize how exhausted you are from work so you pull yourself out of bed, you pour a cup of coffee, you drag yourself here all so that you can look at the friend of sinners who says, are you weary and heavy laden? Come home. There's nothing Christ expects you to pay for yourself. So when we take the Lord's table, we're celebrating that he paid it all for us. We're celebrating that he took the curse for us. And what's that curse? Death. He hung on that cross for you and I, where we should have been. He died and broke his body and shed his blood so that we could have life. And that's the blessing of God, that we get life with him now and forever. So you can't earn it. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing you can do but receive his grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning, this message is simple and hard to put into practice. God, there's not a lot of points here. There's not a lot of uh, 
not a lot of nuance to it. It's pretty straightforward. But God, I'll tell you, my heart is uh, prone to forget this, prone to leave this behind, prone to want to grow beyond this. God, forgive me for that. I pray that you'd set us free this morning to be needy people who receive your grace. And as we come and approach the Lord's table today, help us to rejoice that Christ, you've paid it all. You've paid it all, Jesus. There's nothing left for us to make up for. There's nothing left for us to pay. But we can truly be Jesus people who point to you over and over and over, who run to you over and over and over. The word you used, Christ, was abide. We can abide in you because you are our source of life. And apart from you, we can do nothing. So before we come to the table this morning, I want to invite you to inspect your life a little bit just in an attitude of prayer. What are the things you've been trying to carry alone the ways you've been fooling yourself into thinking you're God. Maybe that's you. You're, maybe your schedule is way too full. And you're fooling yourself into thinking you're God and you can handle a full, more than full schedule of life. And you fooled yourself into thinking that these are all necessary things. You can't stop doing any of them. But the truth is, inside your heart, you are wearing thin, thin, thinner. And you don't have anything in your heart to give anymore. If you're empty this morning, I'd like to invite you to invite God into that emptiness. And confess to him the ways that you've been trying to run your own life. And it turns out you've run it into the ground. Maybe you're here this morning and an epic failure staring you in the face. One that's even too far gone for you to make right. Would you invite God into that failure? And ask him to tell you the truth about the grace you've received in Christ? Maybe this morning you're looking ahead at an impossible, impossible task. I'm not talking about just a project. It could be something like uh, raising kids. And you're faced with the reality that it is absolutely impossible for you to do. Would you invite God into that impossibility and confess to him, John 15, that you can do nothing apart from him? Maybe this morning you're struggling with doubt, questions that are unanswered, things you can't piece together biblically, theologically, philosophically. I was there this week. And can I tell you what pulled me out of it? And it was not an answer. It was bringing my questions to the presence of God and him assuring me that I'm not gonna have every answer. What is it in your heart that's driving you to your need for Jesus this morning? You know, we come and we take the Lord's table because we're celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So if you have not come to know Christ, really this table is not for you this morning. 
what is for you this morning is to come to know Jesus for the very first time. This table, this cracker and juice here is meant to be a remembrance of what Christ has done for us and reminder that we are putting our faith in him fresh and new today. But if there's never been a time in your life that you've put your faith in Jesus, then this morning is your time to turn from your sin, turn from your suffering, stop trying to do life in your own strength, your own wisdom, and turn it over to the king who laid everything down out of love for you because he wants to know you and love you. Come find a life in Jesus this morning.